In Greece, there was a port city called Salonika, which had an extensive Jewish population before the war. Most of the port workers there were Jewish, and on Shabbat, they did not work. Those stevedores would forego their pay rather than desecrate the Shabbat. Non-Jews, Gentiles, accepted this as a fact of life, and the port was closed on the Sabbath day. Imagine that. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 280, The Stubborn Nature of Jewish History. I'm Mayor Soloveitchuk. In the wonderful book that we have cited before, Strangers and Neighbors, What I Have Learned About Christianity by Living Among Orthodox Jews, theologian Maria Johnson explains why she loves the figure of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, in the Hebrew Bible. Johnson writes, quote, Throughout the Bible, God rails at his people again and again for being stiff-necked, stubborn, disobedient, unbiddable. He threatens them with dreadful consequences, and in the short term, the consequences of their stubbornness and disobedience are indeed quite dreadful, end quote. A stiff-necked people. In Hebrew, an amkeshe oref. This is the Almighty's criticism of us. And yet, as Johnson further notes, stiff-neckedness can become a virtue. Quote, Stubbornness can be inconvenient and exasperating, but it can also be a very useful quality. And it is a quality that God knows His people will need. It's not easy being different, and the stiff necks of the Israelites will, in the long run, be the key to their holiness and to their very survival as a people. Before the Israelites crossed the Jordan to take possession of the promised land, Moses warned them of the temptations ahead. When you have your own land, he told them, life will be a lot easier and more secure than it has been in the wilderness. When that happens, when you feel that you can finally relax and enjoy life, don't forget. Don't forget who you were and where you came from. Don't forget who got you out. Don't forget who gave you all this. And don't forget what he has commanded you to do. Stick together and remind each other. Put reminders everywhere on your doorposts, and on your hands and on your foreheads, so that never for a minute will you be able to forget. End quote. Johnson goes on to describe the events that bring Nehemiah's age into being. Quote, when in one of the strangest reversals of fortune in all of history, Cyrus of Persia conquers the Babylonian Empire and decides to send the captives back to their own land, the Jews in Babylon have no doubt that whatever Cyrus thinks his motives are, he is actually a tool in the hand of a god whom he does not know the God of Israel, the holy God who called them to be holy like him. The exiles return to their home is not easy. Their old enemies are not happy to see them back and do everything they can to stop their regaining control of the region. But having overcome all the odds of history, they are not going to let a few hostile armies stop them. Working under enormous pressure, they rebuild the walls and the temple. A greater challenge than that of restoring Jerusalem is rebuilding their culture, rededicating themselves to being the holy nation it was their God-given destiny to be. Instead of the magisterial promises and warnings of Moses, or the anguish and exultation of the prophets, this time they have as their guide the tireless, vehement harangues of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, Johnson continues, is one of my favorite people in the Bible. He has one of the stiffest necks of all time, and he is determined, absolutely determined, with every fiber of his being, that Israel is not going to mess up again. End quote. Johnson thus allows us to look anew at this determined man, a man who, as we have discussed, gives up life in the Persian palace to return to what then would have been a civilizational backwater in order to set the stage for an Israelite spiritual renaissance, as indeed he did. And Johnson herself inspires us to better appreciate the meaning of his message. Throughout the description of Nehemiah's actions, we read how Nehemiah seeks the moral and spiritual improvement of the Israelites in the Holy Land. This relates not only to their obligations toward God, but also toward each other. Nehemiah describes his horror at the mistreatment by Jew of Jew 
discovering how Jews were forcing their brothers and sisters to live lives of indentured servitude. Chapter 5, verse 3. Some also there were that said, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses, that we might buy grain because of the dearth. There were also that said, We have borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought unto bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words. Then I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and said unto them, You exact usury, every one, from his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. And I said unto them, We, after our ability, have redeemed our brethren, the Jews, which were sold unto the Gentiles. And will you even sell your brethren, or shall they be sold unto us? Then they held their peace and found nothing to answer. Thus does Nehemiah and Nehemiah speak out on behalf of the downtrodden, those forced to sell themselves into indentured servitude to their fellow Jews. Then, in chapter 13, Nehemiah focuses on another aspect of biblical obligation, the Sabbath. He is upset to see markets continuing as usual on the Sabbath in Jerusalem. Verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys, as also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them on that day, wherein they sold food. There dwelt men of Tyre also therein, who brought fish and all manner of wares, and sold on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, What evil thing is this that you do, and profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers thus, and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? Yet you bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates should be shut and charged that they should not be opened till after the Sabbath. And some of my servants I set at the gates that there should be no burdens brought in on the Sabbath day. Thus is commerce on the Sabbath stopped in Jerusalem. And though these two stories in chapters 5 and 13 seem very different, they have a common theme. That while Judaism absolutely has a very positive approach to markets, at the same time, this cannot come at the expense of human dignity and at the expense of ritual reminders that there are higher things in life than profit alone. To read Nehemiah is to think of the uproar that occurred in Israel's Knesset when Prime Minister Menachem Begin declared that El Al, then Israel's national airline, would no longer fly on the Sabbath. Many members of the Knesset criticized Begin for causing economic harm to Israel with this decree, showing the emotional link to the observance and faith of the Jews of thousands of years past, reflecting a profound reverence for the generations gone by that would set him apart from his predecessors as prime minister. Begin waxed eloquent in the Knesset, describing the love and the dedication that the denizens of his hometown showed for the words of the fourth commandment. As Yehuda Avner, who was there, describes, Begin said, quote, 40 years ago I returned from exile to Israel. Engraved in my memory still are the lives of millions of Jews simple, ordinary folk eking out a livelihood in that forlorn diaspora where the storms of anti-Semitism raged. They were not permitted to work on the Christian day of rest, Sunday, and they refused to work on their day of rest, Saturday, for they lived by the commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So each week they forswore two whole days of hard-won earnings. This meant destitution for many, but they would not desecrate the Sabbath day. End quote. So Israel's prime minister remembered his brethren from Eastern Europe. And then Begin, as he was wont to do, connected his own experiences to Jews from a very different culture and land, thereby highlighting what unites Jews across time and space. 
as the cat calls from across the Knesset increased. Begin, according to Avner, spoke suddenly of Sepharadim and their own dedication to the Sabbath sanctity. He said, quote, In Greece, there was a port city called Salonika, which had an extensive Jewish population before the war. Most of the port workers there were Jewish, and on Shabbat they did not work. Those stevedores would forego their pay rather than desecrate the Shabbat. Non-Jews, Gentiles, accepted this as a fact of life, and the port was closed on the Sabbath day. Imagine that, end quote. At this, according to Avner, a socialist member of the Knesset accused Begin of taking advantage of workers. And in response, Begin sought to point out the irony of a purported friend of the working man assaulting the Sabbath. Begin said, quote, Let me tell you something, my dear socialist friend. Shabbat enshrines a social ethical principle without peer. Shabbat is one of the loftiest values in all of humanity. It originated with us, the Jews. It is all ours. And then Begin added, speaking to those who spoke of the monetary loss that would be incurred, quote, There is no way of assessing the religious, national, social, historical, and ethical values of the Sabbath day by the yardstick of financial loss or gain. Begin, Avner reports, soon after finished his remarks, turned and limped painfully from the podium, and suddenly stopped, turned around, and said, quote, This house should know. It is not necessary to be an observant Jew to appreciate the full historic and sacred aura that enshrines this perfect gift called Shabbat. Its prohibitions are not arbitrary. They provide insulation against corrosive everydayness. They build fences against invasions by the profane, and they enrich the soul by creating a space for sacred time. In a word, one need not be pious to accept the cherished principle of Shabbat. One merely needs to be a proud Jew. End quote. As such, it is appropriate that Maria Johnson devotes part of her book to celebrating Nehemiah. For as we have mentioned in previous presentations, Johnson's very interest in Judaism began on a Sabbath in Jerusalem, witnessing the prayers Friday evening at the Western Wall. As she wrote, quote, I am usually one to be impressed by old things, but this evening the present was intensely more interesting than the past. The mood among the Jews who crowded the plaza to welcome the Sabbath was one not of lamentation, nostalgia, loss, or bitterness, but of joy, deep and serious and exultant joy. Mature men with full beards and long black coats, men exuding gravitas as the wall exuded antiquity, were dancing and singing with abandon. It was alien and intense and thrilling, and it was important. I'm a scholar trained to keep a rein on my personal responses and to regard everything from a safe analytical distance. But there was no question of my coolly observing the scene as an interesting cultural religious phenomenon. I found myself quite certain that something really was happening as the sun slipped behind the rooftops of Jerusalem, that the whirling, singing crowds were responding to a reality greater than any culture. It mattered deeply that they were there, spinning and rejoicing and praying and welcoming Shabbos Malka, the Queen of Sabbath." End quote. This Shabbat experience in Jerusalem, thousands of years after Nehemiah, led to Johnson becoming friends with her traditional Jewish neighbors back in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and writing a book about it, a book in which she describes Nehemiah and his dedication, seeing in his stubbornness and faith an embodiment of Jewish history itself. Quote, I am sure, Johnson writes, that God does indeed remember Nehemiah. History certainly does. The Judaism that Nehemiah legislated and bullied and nagged into place held and is still holding. Against all logic and reason and in defiance of all the horrors of history, Jews have survived and remembered who they are, where they are from, and to whom they owe their allegiance." End quote. Maria Johnson pondering the faith of her Jewish neighbors, inspired by a Sabbath in Jerusalem, seeks to give credit to a man of whom we do not often think today, Nehemiah. And we should be inspired by her reflections to do likewise. This is Mayor Soloveitchik looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.